go to the Lord. Father, Lord, this morning we have sang praises to your name for who you are, our King, our Father in heaven, the one who is our protection and our refuge. Father, the one who is worthy of all glory. And Lord, this morning as we dive into your word, I pray that we would all truly be blessed by the words that you have given us, your promises, your assurances, the comfort that we get out of this word that has been passed down to us, entrusted to us as your children to protect and to share with the rest of the world, to proclaim at the top of of the mountains, Lord, to shout at the top of our lungs so that all may hear. Father, be with us now. Give us, clear our minds, Lord, so that we may receive this truth. And in your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. What a beautiful day it is to, to gather with you. I'm, I'm honored to be able to continue going through the Psalms as we've done for many weeks now. Um, this morning, this psalm in particular, Psalm 73, is, is a psalm that I feel should be required reading for at least two kinds of people. The first being those who reject religion as pointless. Uh, the second being those whose religion doesn't mean much to them or, or to anyone else. Those are those who should be reading Psalm 73. Now, the first has missed the meaning of religion altogether. The second is losing their grip on it. And it's safe to assume that many of us here today uh, do not belong in the first class. People who think that they, the, the, this way of going to church and, and following a, a particular faith, um, that that's, that's pointless. There's nothing absolutely to it. Or at least they, they don't know what church is about. They don't know what our faith is about. And, and actually today they might act, they'll be out there playing golf, getting ready to watch the ball games. Maybe they're picnicking uh, and possibly even telling themselves that they are just as religious as those of us who are simple-minded enough to go to church. But whatever their rationalization is, there's no point in talking to people who are not here. Today, many of us here in this place, in this church, are in or are periodically tempted to slide into the second group, those whose religious faith does not mean very much to us. Or we have not lost it altogether, but we no longer, the, the, the faith no longer grips us as it once did or as we know that it should. And we continue to come to church, but more from habit than from an actual eager expectation that when we come together, we fellowship with one another, and that we come and we shall find God. And so we share in song, we, we share in prayer, and we listen to sermons, yet feel that somehow our faith has lost both its radiance and its power to help us with, the, with the, the many moral problems, both large and small, that we face each and every day. We find ourselves wondering whether religion actually pays, whether it actually lives up to its promises and its assurances. Because when we look around us, we see irreligious or at best casually religious people who seem to be living these these beautiful lives without the inner torment and conviction and trials of the Christian life. This is where we begin in Psalm 73. The writer here, he's simply human. 
He's honest and he's devout. And yet he is having some of the same kinds of troubles with his faith, faith that, that we have with ours. Is that it seems at face value to have run out of power. Now the point of today's sermon is, is to help us all come to grips with a clear understanding and application of suffering in the life of a believer. Understanding the place of hardship in the life of the believer. And having a proper and biblical understanding of the trials that we face as God's believers. I have not been in ministry but for about five or six years and I can't tell you how many times that I have met another believer and asked simply, you know, how's, how are things going? How is, how is your life right now? And, and there always comes this point in time in the conversation or even later conversations where, where that individual starts to talk about being in a trial in their life or there's suffering in their life. This season is really hard and challenging and in the context of trials, there's this one verse that, that we tend to uh, go back to, run back to, and pray through, and it's found in James. And I'm going to see if you can help me finish this. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And listen, you really want to honor God. You, you want to count it all joy. You, you want to put it in the plus common. You want to know that God is actually perfecting you and he's testing you. He's maturing you. He, he, he's seasoning you. And what he's doing, he's knocking off these rough edges. And, and you want to have the right viewpoint and you want to have the right approach to it. But at the same time, you begin to ask yourself or, or say to yourself, I, I, just, I just wish that I could learn whatever it is that, that God is trying to teach me so that this trial could be over. Right? I, I'm, I'm ready for this, this part of my life to be done, God. When, when does the blessing come? When, are, when am I going to get to move into the next area of my life where I could just go through without these challenges? So this is where we are. We're starting in Psalm 73. If you would, turn to Psalm 73 with me. Specifically, what we want to do is ask that, the question that the, the psalmist Asaph asked in this text. And then we want to actually give the answer to that. Now, this psalm is meant to be instructive. This, this psalm is meant to give us, uh, as children of God, a biblical view of suffering in the Christian life, of trials in the Christian life, and of the apparent uh, prosperity of the wicked. Give us a proper view of that. Now, you are going to face some of these very same issues in your own life, if you have not already, where you're trying to do God's work God's way and you'll find others who are lost and, and living their best life now and in complete rebellion to God and His Word, and for some reason they are the ones who are prospering. It's the proud, the, the violent, the conceited men who are who seem to be enjoying the fruits that were promised to righteous people. Maybe that's you. If not, like I said, you are going to experience that sometime in your Christian life. And we sometimes have these same thoughts running through our heads when we begin to think about ministry, the ministry of the church. We, we know that we're following the Lord's will and, and doing as the, the, the Bible commands, but, but yet we see 
other ministries around us who, who seem to be cutting corners or, or, or maybe they've, they've even strayed away from truth and, and we start to compare our ministry with their ministry, uh, looking at their worship. They've got the, the, the new songs, the lights and the projection and, and their preaching is very relevant and it's drawing hundreds to them. And, and so they have these sweet programs that are helping them grow. And they're using market-driven approach to ministry, prospering and at the same time bragging about uh, the work that they're doing. And when you look at the unsaved world, you see that, particularly in American culture today, that, that many people prosper abundantly, persisting in wickedness, persisting in evil, and then boasting about it and, and becoming idols for the world to admire. But what about the believer? If you're the believer and you're just trying to honor God and you're, you're making sacrifices, but when you're trying to do it God's way, you wind up suffering for it. This is the issue that Asaph is dealing with in Psalm 73. Asaph goes through a three-step reasoning process as he develops this question that he's pondering and seeking to understand. So for starters, he opens the, the entire thing up. Now, now here's what I know. He says, truly... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is what Asaph knows right off the bat. Notice he says, God is good. He is good to Israel. That, that is his chosen people, and most particularly to those who are pure in heart. And it's just, there's this sense in which Asaph already understands that, that God is taking care of the people that are the chosen nation of Israel. And at the same time, Asaph recognizes that there's a subset of that nation, in particular, that are living a devoted life of obedience to God and his word. God is indeed good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are devoted to him. But then notice, we, we have a contrast here in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So I, so I came to this place where I, I knew that to be true. I know that God is good, and I would affirm it as true, but as I start looking at my life and, and I start looking at the world around me, there are some things uh, that, that I have to draw into question in my heart and in my mind. And so we ask Asaph, well, what is the source of this, Asaph? Why, why, are you, why do you have these questions? Why are you slipping? And he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you notice that it's a heart issue. So I notice there's prosperity in this life that goes with rebelling against God and living in this ungodly way, and I, I became envious of the arrogant. I became jealous. I became envious of how well the wicked seem to have it in this life. Now, when you look at this from, from an Old Testament perspective, when you look at this in the context of the nation of Israel and the specific promises that God gave Israel, what does God say? He says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. And we see there are temporal blessings that are described there. But he also says, if you disobey me, then I'll curse you. And there are, there are temporal curses, consequences for sin that are described there. Many times, as Christians, we tend to adopt this, this same set of principles, don't we? 
Because what we do is we say, well, if I live a godly life, if I'm obedient, if I'm faithful, if I'm this husband that God has called me to be, this father that God's called me to be, listen, I'm not expecting for heaven just to open up and pour out a a thousand blessings upon me and everything to be good, but I sure expect that the work of my hands would produce something good. So in the Christian life, you're going to wind up, if you have not already, you're doing God's work, God's way. You're, you're, you're going to work hard, and you're going to be punished for it. You're going to labor diligently to study the Word of God, seeking to obey it and live by it, sharing it with others and so forth, and seeing nothing and experiencing much suffering and hardship. There are times in life, there are times in ministry, even in the context of the Old Testament saints where they're living a a, a righteous life and, and they're really seeking to honor God on an individual level. And they look around and they start to see people that are devoting themselves to being wicked. And they're the very ones that seem to be blessed by God's uh, temporary blessings. You see the ease that they have in life. You see prosperity and prominence that they have. And it's easy for us to say, well, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. It makes absolutely no sense that I don't. Because when I, when I compare my moral standards, my, my personal practices and character, my commitment, my concern in walking in obedience with God in comparison to them, They're over there, they're putting their nose to God, and here I am over here on my face praying and worshiping the Lord. And I have the hard life. I'm the one suffering for doing what's right. Every time I step out of line, here it comes, conviction. It immediately hits me. The Lord, he deals with me immediately. Now think about this from simply an earthly perspective. It can really cause you to wonder, especially when you get your focus on the apparent temporal prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the word prosperity there is the Hebrew word shalom. I'm sure many of us have heard that before, right? So, so just so we're clear, the word shalom, it just doesn't just mean peace in the sense of the absence of conflict. Shalom conveys the presence of blessing and every good thing. And so I see the shalom of the wicked. And here's what I'm seeing. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So they have no pangs until death. What what this means is they don't seem to come to a particularly untimely death. Now, have you ever read, if you go back to Acts chapter 12, when when Herod's standing there, uh, and and the people are saying, oh, the voice of God, right? He's not a man in order to to win over Herod's affection. And Herod's standing there like, oh, yes, bring it, right? let's, Let's hear it some more. And then God does what? He strikes him down. He strikes him down. He's eaten by worms and he dies. Amen? Right? When we're actually working through that passage, we're reading it, uh, you're kind of rooting on like, thank God for taking action against Herod and striking him down. Thank you for taking down such arrogance. And to kind of top it off, right? He's eaten by worms. We're like, wow, what a vivid picture. 
Asaph says there's no pangs until death. I don't see them meeting a particularly untimely demise. Their body is fat. Now, this doesn't mean that they need to go out and get a 24-hour fitness pass, right? So, So what he means here is they're well taken care of. They have all they can eat plus some. They're, they're not going without. They're not wondering where the next meal's coming from. They're fat. They have everything. They're prospering. They're, they're not just making it. They are well-off individuals. He says they're not in trouble. They're not, they're, they're not stricken. So now he starts speaking of toil and, and hard labor. They don't have to work hard like the rest of us. They're not stricken. They're not plagued. Their world is not rocked like the rest of us. And he continues, therefore pride is their necklace. So arrogance, pride, it becomes like this badge of honor. They wear something for everyone to see. It becomes another source for them to boast about themselves. And then their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. This is this vim- the vivid image that is being painted here. So essentially, everything that they look at, everything that they could think of that they want, they get it. They get it all. Even the things that they dream up, they end up getting their heart's desire no matter how ambitious it may be. This is what Asaph's wrestling with. They scoff. They speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So, so they make fun of the lesser position that people are in, and they don't have a problem taking advantage of people. They speak down on everyone. They speak as if they're superior. The, the reason that they have everything is that they were smart enough and they were able enough to secure it for themselves. The reason that you don't have everything that I have is that you're doing it wrong. You need to do it my way. They set their mouths against the heaven. Their tongue struts through the earth. They aren't afraid to speak contrary to what God has said. They aren't afraid to tell anyone what they think. They act as if they themselves are masters of the universe. Right? Go back to being superior. This is their thought process. Therefore... His people turn back to them. They find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Now, there, there is a question here about his people. Is he talking about the people of God or is he talking about the arrogant people? But in either case, the arrogant ways of the wicked have actually drawn a crowd and people are flocking to hear them and follow their example. It's likely referring most directly to the followers of the arrogant. And it's easy to draw a crowd and get a bunch of followers when you're, you're wealthy and you're bragging about it, right? Because I want to know how you did that. So let me come listen, share with me your, your tricks and your tactics so that, that I too can be wealthy and prosperous. It's very hard to attract a bunch of followers when you're just dedicated to living a godly life. In other words, these people are popular, and they're great, and they grab your attention by saying, well, if you want, to, you want to be great, then do it my way. And people just eat that up. They just love it. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So there, there are two ways uh, this is taken. So, so how can God know? Some people take this as Asaph saying, uh, they're saying, I can, I can get away with all this because God won't know. But I don't, I don't think that... Um, this is a challenge to God's omniscience here. 
I, I think this is a challenge to God's truthfulness, his knowledge and his real understanding of what is right and what is profitable and what is good. Because the second part of the verse says, is there knowledge in the most high? So imagine they're saying, listen, you're committing to doing what the Bible says, and I'm here to tell you that doesn't work, and I'm proof. Just look at my life, and you'll see that. That's what Asaph's wrestling with. Because if you look at their life, if you look at their prosperity, if you look at the money that's rolling in, if you look at the shalom that surrounds them, it sure looks like the wicked prosper for being wicked. They say, well, you're wasting your time trying to do it God's way. You do it this way, look at what you get. This, this type of thinking, this lifestyle surrounds us today. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in all of its forms. You can have your best life now and you can have a really big church preaching that message, that feel-good message, just staying away from sin. Why? What's the purpose? Preaching the message that just uplifts and and fills you without preaching sin. Why? Because people don't want to hear about it. Just focus on the good stuff. And you'll start drawing a crowd. That's the kind of Jesus I want. I want the good stuff. I want the blessings. And you will start building a big church. Here at Crabapple, what I've seen and, and experienced We're just trying to do good, sound, biblical exegesis of both Testaments and preach the truth of God's word rather than trying to pump people up and and walk them out all happy about themselves when they leave. We're trying to call people to repent of their sins. And guess what? As we do that, maybe sometimes the church seems to be getting smaller instead of bigger. It may seem like people may be unhappy or not pleased or, or that we're tightening the budget instead of making it monstrous for bigger and better things. And we may say, oh, what trials, what suffering, Lord, we're going through. Are we doing this wrong because people are leaving? And he gets to his point. Behold, verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They're increasing in their riches. Listen, it just keeps getting better for them. Asaph sees this. He's wrestling with it each and every line. Here's the basic question that Asaph asks. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now this is amazing that a man of God who writes inspired scripture wrestles with this question. Am I doing something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? Have I sinned in some way? Am I not doing it right? And then you hear it. It's in the back of your mind, and you're asking those questions. You're like, no, no, no. Like, we're, we're doing this right. We know that we are. Then you wonder, then why still the struggle? Why the struggle? Why still the fight? If I'm doing what is right, then why isn't it working out the way that it's supposed to? This is what Asaph wrestles with. In vain I have kept my heart pure. I have tried to honor God with my attitude, with my motivations, with my desires of, the, of, of my heart. And, and, and it's all been this pointless exercise. Why? For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
I've been reproved and reprimanded. Every time I have, a, I have a sinful thought, every time that I've had a sinful attitude, I have been met immediately with conviction from the Lord. Verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So this is how I read this. He's saying that if, if I had said, this is what I'm going to say, what I'm actually thinking, you know what I would have done? I would have undermined the faith of other believers. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Why is it that the wicked prosper while God's children suffer? Why is it that there seems to be a temporal reward for cursing God and, and violating biblical principles and practices? Uh, why does it seem like everything goes their way? And if you try to live a godly life, and, and the harder you try to honor God, the worse it seems to go for you. That's the big question. That's what Asaph is wrestling with. And we get to verse 16, and he now begins the answer. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until is a big part of this verse. Until I went back into God's presence and I humbled myself before him and I sought to worship him and I got back to just the basics of honoring him in my life and in my actions and in my devotions, when I went back into the context of worship, you know what I realized? This life isn't all there is to life. This life is temporary. Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. What Asaph started to think through was that they, they may have everything going well for them in this life. They may be actually reaping benefits temporarily from all their arrogance and all their sin and all their violating of God's word. But how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. I know, well, I don't want to assume. We've all had dreams, right? We have these dreams. And, and a lot of time you can recall maybe a time where you had that dream where you're falling and you're falling in this abyss and all of a sudden you, you, you jolt, right? You wake up and you're like sweating and you don't know what in the world's happened. It felt so real and, and your heart's pumping a lot. And, and then you're like, I don't even know if I can go back to sleep after that, right? So some of us have had that feeling and then you lay back down, you go back to sleep, and, and you don't think about it again. But when it was happening, it seemed very real to you. That's this temporal life, right? So you, you will live 30, 40, 50, 80, 90, 100, whatever it may be. The fact of the matter is that 100 is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity, this life is like a dream. All of the blessings that are coming upon the wicked, all of the temporal blessings that they're enjoying are literally temporary. Everything they seem to get does nothing more than accumulate eternal wrath for them. This life isn't the end. This life isn't the punishment for sin. 
God doesn't have to strike them down so they're eaten by worms and die and to hold them accountable for their action. As a matter of fact, being eaten by worms and dying was the least of Herod's worries. Because that untimely demise is nothing compared to the eternal wrath of God that Herod will suffer. As Asaph was awakened, one thing that stayed on his mind was that evil is evil at all times in all places and in all people. Evil is evil because it is a violation of the will of God. No matter how successful it seems to be in terms of power, wealth, or or anything else, evil is still evil in sight of God. And the evildoer, though they may be prosperous, they are fated to one day answer to the one who has asked men to put faithfulness and righteousness ahead of all else. So before we become envious of the wicked and their prosperity, take a step back for a minute. Readjust your lens of your mind so that you recognize the wicked are accountable for all of their transgressions. And when God allows them plenty of leash to go and hang themselves, all he's doing is permitting them to accumulate for themselves as much eternal wrath as they want. Look at verse 21. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in the heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. When I had this question in my heart, when I had this position, when I had that viewpoint, oh Lord, I was a fool to think such a thing. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Even when I was soured in my heart because I was envious of the the arrogance, I was envious of them and their temporal blessings, you, Lord, were with me. You want to know why the wicked seem to prosper in their wickedness, but God's children have it tough? Why God's children are disciplined when they they get out of line, when, when trials are brought into God's children, even when they haven't done anything wrong, just to uh, form you more and more into the image of Christ? You want to know why you sometimes end up in a context like Job where you've been doing things right so well and so long and, and, and so faithful to God and his reward to you is he's going to put your faith on display in a particularly challenging and hard situation? You want to know why God treats his children like that while the wicked are over there prospering? It's because they're not God's children. They're not God's children. You want to know why God allows the wicked to prosper and accumulate that wrath? You want to know why God allows them to get away with their sins? You want to know why God doesn't strike them down with this guilty conscience, this conviction when they sin as he does you? You want to know why God doesn't bring the kind of trials into their lives to perfect them and to humble them and to mature them and to shape them into the image of Christ like he does with you? You want to know why? It's because they're not his children. You are. Asaph recognizes that. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Your intentions for me are not just tied in what my earthly life is like. Your plans for me involve me being in glory with you. 
Asaph has changed his entire perspective now. He's got it all corrected. He, he puts the biblical glasses back on, not just from a temporal perspective, but from an eternal perspective. And he comes to this conclusion in verse 27. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart, my life, they're refocused to what is really important. You want to know what the great loss was to Adam and Eve in context to the fall? It wasn't that, that Adam's, he, the, the perfect relationship with his, life, his wife was lost. It, it wasn't Adam's ability to reside in the garden. It wasn't Adam's ability to live without death. You want to know what it was? The separation of his relationship with God. The greatest loss at the fall was a perfect relationship with our Creator. And, and that's what Asaph is reminded of. And remember, you go back, it all started with until. Until I went back into the presence of the Lord. And as, as some of you, you're like, I, I know it, I've lived that. I've been in Asaph's position, right? Where, where we start leaving the presence of God and things seem to be going wrong. We start looking at the world without biblical lenses on and we start to view everything as Oh, poor me, I'm suffering. These trials, they're hard, this hardship. Why does everyone else have these blessings and I don't? I'm committed, I, I'm, I'm, I'm faithful to the Lord. But when you step back in the presence of God, you're reminded, I'm his child though. God puts me through this. These trials, these struggles, this suffering is for my good and he does it because I'm his. I'm his own. Asaph, he he ends this psalm. He says, my flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph, he's gone from being envious of the temporal blessings of the wicked and he has refixed his mind to see that all of this uh, discipline of the Lord, of, of God's hands that are upon him, every trial, every affliction, every hardship that comes upon him, it's ultimately for his good. It's not just temporary, it's eternal. So as we end today... I want us to know what's really worth having in this life and the life to come is the close communion and fellowship with God as our Father. That is what's most important. And the whole reason I'm here is, is that I deliver that great truth to you and to others. And I pray as we leave here today and as we go about our life, that you would do the same as you go from here today. Quit worrying about the, the, the temporal blessings of those around who don't know Christ and focus on the fact that you're God's child. You're suffering in the trials. They're for your good. Have the different perspective. Trust in God. Trust that he knows what he's doing in your life. 
follow his ways, follow his will according to the word, the promises and the assurances that he has given us, they will come. We don't need it in this temporal life because we've been promised to something greater in the life to come, which is eternal. Amen? Let's go to the Lord. Father, Lord, I am always thankful and grateful for a time spent with my church family. Father, for you to gather us in this place this morning to hear truth, Lord, to feast upon your word and to be reminded, Father, of who we are before your throne. Father, reminded that we are, we are sinners and, and we've been there. We know who we were prior to you coming and placing in us a new heart that we may desire to honor and worship you with our mouth, with our actions, in our families, and in our church ministry. Father, we do all things to bring you glory. By your hand, we are able to do such. And Father, as we are reminded of that, we are also reminded, Lord, that there are many blessings in our life we may not see them all we may not recognize them at face value but Lord you are doing all things for our good for those who are faithful who honor you Lord who glorify your name Father I pray that as a church we would never lose sight of who we are as your children as your bride that we would strive to to follow your ways according to your word to not interject any of our own opinions or thoughts, but yet seek your word. Study together. Learn with one another what it is you want us to do so that we may follow your will. Let us do that united with as, as one another. Father, if there be someone here today, Lord, who does not know you, Father, I, I pray that you would lay upon their heart. I pray that you would let them know, Father, they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Lord, you, by your work, by your hand, by, by your, your plans, Lord, you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for our sins. That as a sinner, Lord, who comes before your throne and repents and turns away from the wicked ways of this world, seeking not prosperous things, not seeking wealth, not seeking a popularity, but seeking to glorify you, that you have promised you will save us, Lord. You, you will bring us into your hands. You will hold us tightly and nothing can draw us out of that. We're covered by your spirit, covered by the blood of Christ, Lord, for all eternity. May that assurance rest upon the one who does not know today and comes to you by your drawing. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let's continue worshiping our Lord.